Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. What is it? Tell me Tell me what it is. I want to bask in the glory of your... Uh, you know, it was, was actually a little chilly today. I think it was only in the mm, about 60s. 60. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really... Man, I tell you, it was... Uh-huh. I actually... I. I Pulled my coat around me a little bit and went, woo! Oh, yeah, yeah. snuggled Ooh, right up. Yeah, your sleeve, sleeveless today. coat, uh, otherwise known as a vest. <laughs> I'll, bet you're, I'll bet you're one of a, those, the few Phoenix vest wearers. Yes. <laughs> vest and Speedos, that's all I wear. We are the next reel, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We talk about movies and then spoil them heavily. Uh, and you can find us at thenextreel.com. You can read the blog stylings of the goodly uh, Steve Sarmento. And uh, you can see all of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours that Andy and I have spent together over the last several years talking about movies in the regular Next Reel weekly show. So we encourage you to check that out. Uh, you can also find links to all of our social platforms, including the uh, uh, jumping over to Letterboxd to see our watch list for 2014. If you want to keep up with the movies that we're talking about, when we talk about them, you can find the movies on letterboxd.com slash the next reel. And with that, I'd like to do a graceful toss to Andy for our weekly update Ooh. on Andy versus <laughs> the people. The Instagram Pony Prize Guess the Movie Challenge. Right. It was Andy? a it was a good week. You know, I, I um Well, it was who? a good challenge. I, I threw out uh the movie Holes, which I think is a, a fantastic uh, kids film. It is a fantastic and kids film. there were a lot of guesses. Lots of guesses. I really I don't you've seen the movie. It it has it kind of jumps back yeah. and forth between present day and flashbacks to kind of the Old West in that area. And so I was really specifically just picking Old West photos as opposed to any of the present-day stuff, which I think is a little more obvious. And so there's lots of guesses, everything from Fistful of Dollars to uh, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Man Called Horse, The Wild Bunch, City Slickers. You know, people were kind of all over the map trying to get it. And uh, finally, on the third image... Windy 21 nailed it, and, you know, I was kind of surprised. I was hoping it would go a little longer, but I was <laughs> thrilled uh, that uh, someone was able to figure it out after those few images. So congratulations, Windy 21. We love seeing lots of guesses, too. Yes, That's really absolutely. Fun. It's more fun when lots yeah. of people are trying it yeah. out. That's really cool. Uh, Windy 21 entered to win the Pony That's Prize. Right. Uh, which, you know, it's looking more and more like Andy's just going to come to your house and hang out for yes, a few hours. Uh, well, 
Maybe watch. Maybe watch. His maybe movie maybe sing a a new ringtone for you live. <laughs> hey, jaunty tune. <laughs> but I only know three, so it's got to be uh, one of those. Uh, excellent. <laughs> oh dear. You know, I, I've been. I feel like we would be remiss if we did not talk about. Uh, and this is. I, I here we are. We've been laughing, and then and it's, this is this is a dour mm. segue. Uh, did you not feel completely kicked in the gut this it week? It really was uh, horrible, horrible, horrible news about Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, and it was just one of those ones where it's particularly awkward initially because it was, oh my gosh, can you believe Philip Seymour Hoffman was found dead? And then it then started, people started posting, oh, this is one of those hoaxes. Here's the website. Well, because I think it was just a hoax, like yeah. a few days prior, it was yeah. a real and so hoax. People were really confused, and right. it took. And people were like, "No, no, no! I saw it on in the New York Times," and and then you know, it, it took. It seemed to take a good couple hours for the news to kind of straighten out yeah. that in fact it did happen. And just you know, uh, man, I don't know. I was really, really uh, bummed out by that news. Um, not only because he's this one. really, I think, one of the best actors that we have living or, or was living right now, but also because, I mean, you know, he leaves behind a family. And it's just, you know, it just is really hard. It is really, really hard. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, in terms of the industry, I think we, we he was a, a unique talent. And, you know, I, I have had conversations about, you know, uh, specifically about Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman and just being really genuinely excited to mm-hmm. age with him. Do you know? You know? Because, um, it, and I know you you aren't particularly a fan of, of the film, but I think his performance in Almost Famous and, and the, the late night phone conversation about I, cool. What are you talking about? I love is, that movie. Yes. Yeah, oh, you do? hates it. Who is it Steve? that doesn't? Oh, Steve. Yeah, He's right. the one. Okay. Well, good. I I'm glad it. you love it because that... That sequence, uh, I you know, I fell in love with Philip Seymour Hoffman a little bit in that movie. Like really, like he's that was a that was a, a fantastic piece. I've seen every one of his films, and I, I, I there there just isn't a one that I can't find something uh, uh, not to love about his work. He is a fantastic, was a fantastic talent, and a great loss to the industry. But to your point, I I am, you know, I I think I'm I'm just more aware. With each passing day, as I grow with my own family, just what a what an incredible loss yeah, that would yeah. be, uh, yeah. personally. So, hearts go out to uh, to those uh, yep, grieving. Here. All right, and now uh, on to the funny stuff. Let's talk about trailers. <laughs> Let's talk about mine first because it is so funny. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> all right. Kick it off. Uh, yeah, I dare it, it actually is uh, uh, not not funny. It is not funny. <laughs> not another one of Malkovich's it's, comedic. It, roles. I don't think so. This is uh, Cesar Chavez, an American hero. Uh, this the story of uh, Cesar Chavez as he uh, tries to get rights for all of the farm workers, and. It looks like a great film. Uh, yes, John Malkovich is in it as somebody who is kind of looks like he's kind of trying to help uh, Chavez and his fight. But um, uh, Michael Pena plays uh, uh, Cesar Chavez, and I gotta say, I've always loved uh, Pena, and I think that I don't know. It, there's something great about 
seeing him kind of carrying the film, you know. And uh, I don't know. I'm I'm really excited. It's got uh, uh, Pena in it. It's got Rosario Dawson, America Ferrera, and uh, and Malkovich, and it's directed by Diego Luna, which. My understanding is this is his directorial debut, and I, I've i always liked him since I've seen him acting in some of his earlier films. And it, the fact that he's kind of directing this really piques my curiosity, and I'm curious to see what he's going to do with this film. I I am curious about that too. I you know I don't have I don't know much about it. The trailer looks really interesting, and uh, I just want to highlight your point about Michael Pena. Uh, I was really surprised to see him in a um, in this leading role. Right? Uh, you know, I'm so used to seeing him as the right. the other guy. Uh, he and he's a great other guy. I mean, he's been in a, you know big roles as right. another guy. Um, you know, but. But this role to see him taking on such a, uh, a pivotal, <laughs> pivotal, a pivotal, uh, you know, figure of recent history is um, uh, it's yeah. He, looks he great. really does. Yeah, it's very strong. Uh, it, it's one of those films that looks like there's going to be um, some interesting stuff going on with it. Just, I mean, it's a really interesting story. Uh, definitely an interesting political thriller and biographical story. And uh, yeah, I I'm just curious to see how. Uh, Diego Luna, of all people, kind of carries it as as a film. I'm I'm very curious about him as a director. I forget. Did you see? Did you ever see? I Gangster didn't Squad? yet. Hmm. Hmm. That's too bad. Navi Dad, <laughs> gotta see it. Navi Dad. Uh, I I take. Uh, he does a great. He does a great I, job I in the film. But he's another yeah. guy. I was going to say, yeah, I take it ahead. back, Diego Luna has directed another film called Abel uh, back in 2010 uh, about a peculiar young boy who, as he blurs reality and fantasy, takes over the responsibilities of a family man in his father's absence. So that is something that uh, Luna has directed before, along with some segments in some other projects. He did a documentary and then he did a segment in another film. So, I mean, he has directed a few things. And actually, he's produced a number of things. Um, and then, of course, acted in just a heck of a lot of stuff. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm really curious to see uh, how this one turns out. Excellent. This, this one opens April 4th, 2014. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yes, now good we can do add. yours. Yes, now People they, should, yes, know they should know that. Okay, mine is... A little bit bittersweet. <laughs> is it bittersweet? It is. It is really bittersweet. I'm nervous about this one. Okay, first of all, you know I'm a big fan of the pulp, pulp fiction. You know I'm a big fan, and I don't mean the movie, although I'm also a fan of that. I'm a fan of literally these uh, the kind of pulp crime novels, and Dean Koontz is one of those that I. I he's my summertime kind of literature mm-hmm. of choice. Uh, you know the empty calories kind of literature. Great stories. They you know, move along quickly. They have, you know, great, interesting heroes. And, um, and so I'm, you know, I'm a fan mm-hmm. of the Coons. And uh, my father-in-law, uh, you know, introduced me to this series, the Odd Thomas series. And it's got this just most unique central figure, this Odd Thomas. He's, he's very odd. And he's, he's, you know, call him Odd Thomas. And, and uh, the, they made a movie out of it, Odd Thomas, the movie. It is, quote, a comedy horror mystery. 
And I guess that's that's fair. I mean, I you know, that's fair. There's more sort of thrills in the Dean Koontz kind of uh, rendition of the original, uh, the canonical Odd Thomas. But, I, you know, I get it. I was excited when I heard that this movie was being made, and I, I was very much looking forward to it. And I think it was supposed to be released in July, June or July of last year. And then it was shelved. It went hmm. silent, dark, no trailer, no nothing. And it, the the word was out that this was going to join, this film is going to join the list of films that, you know, were made and just were never released for some reason or another. Maybe it was a conflict of scheduling. Maybe there was just a, a studio conflict. Maybe there was some other legal thing going on. Maybe it was just a crummy movie and they, they just decided not that it wasn't worth it. Uh, but... It has a new release date. Unfortunately, it's direct to digital, and that's what makes it, I think, bittersweet, right? This movie was shelved for months, and now it's going straight to iTunes. Is that the new kind of back catalog? Uh, And the problem with it is I I think it's an interesting— it's an interesting film with interesting people. Anton Yelchin in it, the young uh, Russian from— who Star Trek? uh, uh, Star Trek, Chekhov. He also, uh, gosh, he did that one with uh, Justin Timberlake. Can't remember the name on that one. It was uh, the, uh, nah, oh, I lost it. Anyway, oh, uh, it was, Anton uh, Yelchin, Alpha uh, Dog, Addison right? Timlin, Alpha Dog. That was a that was a tough one to watch, but he has a great performance in that film. Um, it, it is uh, William Defoe uh, is in this film. It it looks uh, interesting, directed by Stephen. Yeah, Summers. Stephen Summers did. Uh, you know, he's he's his name's on all the the Mummy movies and the Scorpion King and Van Helsing, and he's got all the kind of um, you know uh, action cred. He's he's written a bunch of uh, other. You know, he wrote the latest GI Joe. Uh, you know, he's he's got those behind him. Um, but uh, you know, and and I those again, those are very similar to my feeling about Dean Koontz. So, like, they're the empty calorie excitement kind of yeah. movies. You know what I mean? And I like those. I'm, I'm fine with those. But I just worry that this one's going to be, I don't know, less The Mummy and more Death Race 2000. You know what well, I'm saying? Well, yeah. And you got to worry about the, the Koontz movies anyway when they get uh, translated. Yeah. It's not always the best. I mean, how many people remember the uh, 1998 film Phantoms that was... Uh, so. Yeah, no, I do, but yeah, not for the right exactly. reasons. Oddly yeah, enough, Peter O'Toole was in that one. <laughs> I know, you of see my people. point. Oh, yeah, uh, that was pretty terrible. So, I, you know, I'm nervous about it. But you said, when you watched you said you were interested. My curiosity too, right? is incredibly piqued. I've never heard of the series. I've never read a Dean Koontz novel. Um, my wife uh, loves his books, but I, I just haven't sat down to read any of them. This one definitely has some very peculiar vibe uh, just in the in the concept of this world that has been created that uh, it definitely draws me in. It looks really, really unique. Well, that was the thing about the books, too. You know, sometimes you get the feeling like, oh, my gosh, it took me a few chapters to get into the book and really figure out that I understood this world. And this one, it took me a full book to get into the series. You know, like it was to to really sort of buy into his unique abilities, and I I uh, I, I really quite like them. I think it's a it's a unique take on this style of of uh, how many books are there? So, but it's like a, it's an actual 20. series that he's done a number of these Odd uh, Thomas books. Okay. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Hmm. Uh, 
yeah, so I'll look it up while you you say something. Well, I you know there's <laughs> go ahead wit. There is something really uh, compelling about Yelchin and this idea that he's I don't know. There's something weird about this relationship he has with the girl that I I, I think that's what piques my curiosity. It's like he's like uh, it's almost like he's a supernatural hunter or something like that. And yeah. she like works in an ice cream shop, yeah. but she's got the little earbud in and is kind of like his handler almost. I, I don't really understand their relationship, but it really piques my curiosity. And it, it, there's something weird about the vibe in it where it's like they met at a, you know, one of those little, uh, you know, fortune teller machines that spits out, you know, you will, are destined to be together forever. And so they are working together. I don't know. All of that stuff strikes me as creating a compelling case to make this interesting Well, you know what's, what, yeah, it really is. You know, he's got, his ability is, is interesting. It's not one that you normally think of. And they didn't, they sort of alluded to this in the, in, in the trailer, but, but didn't really kind of leverage it. Um, So he can see spirits of the dead, right? That's his, his thing. And he can, he, he can make himself like, uh, he, be heard to them, but but they can't speak to him, and and uh, so he can see them, and they can they can you know give him signs, um, but they can't he can't hear them, and and so that adds an, another layer of complication to like how he interacts with these characters. But he has these sort of partner characters, and they you know when he points at Elvis Presley in the trailer, he was you know up through the first like three or four of these books, Elvis was constantly with him and then it kind of you know, there were some others. Alfred Hitchcock kind of moved in and out and um uh, so you know he has these these kind of partners. His books, there are it looks like there are nine uh odd books or actually I take that back. Um there's there are a couple of prequels, but the official series uh looks like one, two, three, four, five, six. Six hmm. odd books. And and uh, the first one is called Odd and Times, then... uh, but they're all Forever Odd, Brother Odd, Odd Hours, Odd Apocalypse, and Deeply Odd. Gotcha. Is the most recent huh. one. So, anyhow, I am looking forward to it. I'll see it. I'll plop down some dollars for it in the tunes. There you go. Let's, Let's talk about our movie. <laughs> Ringtone. Close encounters of the first kind sighting of an unidentified flying object. Close encounters of the second kind, physical evidence of a UFO. Close encounters of the third kind, actual contact. A close encounter could happen to anyone. It could happen to you. It does happen to Roy Neary. Who are you people? We have very little time, Mr. Neary. We need answers from you. They're honest, direct, and to the point. Who are you, people? Have you recently had a close encounter? I want to speak to someone in charge. Une rencontre plutôt inhabituelle. I want to lodge a complaint. A close encounter with something very unusual. What the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you, people? It begins in an Indiana town and leads to one inescapable conclusion. Wow, this movie. Now, which one did you watch? You watched all three, I'm sure, you big show. I did watch all three. You did? Seriously? I thought I you were did. joking. Uh, no, I, I really did. <laughs> 
I watched the original cut. I watched the re-release special edition that came out in 1980. And then I watched the director's cut that came out in, was it 98? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's serious. I got a full dose of Close Encounters. I'll tell you something about this, though. I'm dying, dying to hear. When you're sleepy and you're watching Close Encounters for the third time and you wake up, and you and it's playing. It's really hard to figure out where it was that you fell asleep <laughs> because it's the entire movie is so fresh in your head. It was a real challenge to go. Let's see. Did I see this scene? I did, but was it this version that I saw it in? And it was yeah. Yeah. I I drifted a few times. I I'll admit it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I assume this is a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah. No. I can. I. I, I yes. I buy that. Uh, you still like it. I love it. This is one of those movies that um, I, I don't know if I... I think I, as I've grown, I think my love for it has grown. I think so, too. Although I have personal problems with it that I didn't have the last time I watched it. It's been a long time since I I'm watched curious, it. I'm curious what your personal problems are, because I have personal problems... Not with the film itself, but uh, some specific character yes, actions yes, in the film. Yes, and I, I I'm very curious. Uh, well, you say say it. Character actions that end up fundamental to the plot that I used to think, oh, that totally makes sense, and now I think that would never ever happen. Like what? Dreyfus leaves his family. <laughs> There, there are a number of, of things about parents in this film. And it's funny because Spielberg has come out and said, this was a film that of all the films that I've made dates me the most. When I go back and watch it, it's the film that is made from a very specific point in my life, which for him was, I mean, he was young when he made this. And it definitely was a film that was made by a young person who was in that place where I, I can't remember if he was married at this point in his life, but he was perfectly willing to just up and leave to go with the aliens at that point in his life, which is why he wrote it this way where he's just like, hell yeah, I'll get on that ship and go see what's up there in space. And well, and that's the whole point, right? Because that's what I imagine you and I 20 years ago having a very similar conversation. Of course I would do stupid stuff like that. You know, we're living in a dorm. Yeah, right, exactly. Anything yeah, was, is better than where we were living. <laughs> he was 30 years old when he uh, started shooting this film. So he was in that place where he was perfectly happy to just jump and bail and, and go experience that. As he's gotten older and he looks back on the film, he's like, there's no way I would ever make that choice. I would never leave my family. I would never, I would never uh, tear up my living room and destroy my my." my family and what it means to me by building this giant thing in the living room. He would never go to that place. And I, I, I don't think that's what bothers me so much as um, some of the other character elements. I mean, I think, I think Roy, Richard Dreyfuss's character in this, is really kind of just not that great of a father from the beginning. I mean... Well, and neither but, is Melinda Dillon as a mother. And like, neither is yeah, Melinda that, Dillon. She's, she's the other one that I have problems with. <laughs> They're both horrible. And Terry Garr is really not a great wife. Like no, she's, she's just not. really not a no great spouse. No support there. No support there. The more that we talk about it, this is not a like a marriage therapy movie. <laughs> it's really, it's 
not. I mean, there's the the most interesting thing that I really enjoyed in the original cut, which is the one that came out in 1977. When we first meet Roy, we we have the same beginning where we see um, everyone, like all these scientists arriving in this, in this, uh, it's like a haboob in the Mexican, uh, in the Sonoran desert in Mexico, which is like this giant dust. There you go. (laughs) We get them in Phoenix all the time. It's so much fun in the summer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so they, they, Go there, and then we've got the um, like the air controllers who are dealing with uh, communicating with some pilots who see UFO, and then we come and meet Roy. Or no, then we have Melinda Dillon in the first experience where um, her son Barry basically sees, sees all these toys, sees some aliens, and goes running out in the night, and she chases after. And then we meet Roy at his house. In the original cut, he is playing with his trains, and he's got his little. Uh, Pinocchio uh, music box kind of spinning around and, and it's just him and his train and he's just kind of in this pensive place you can tell he's just playing with his toys at late at night or something just trying to figure his life out I really liked that way to meet Roy the way that it is in the other two cuts when we meet Roy he is helping his or he's playing with his trains but he's helping his son with his homework quote unquote helping his son because he's a useless father when it comes to helping his son. Yeah, his I love that is, line. <laughs> it's just like Go ahead. his son is like, hey, I, I don't understand what these fractions are. I, I need help with these problems. Look, I went to college so I don't have to do problems anymore. <laughs> That's basically what he says. <laughs> That's why I graduated. So <laughs> I never I... have to do problems anymore. <laughs> It's like, wow, way to help your kid out there, buddy. Well, and B, let me say, I've tried that response, and it doesn't actually work, ever. (laughs) Well, and it doesn't work for him. But then he goes into trying to do an example, and it still isn't a helpful example. It's not, because he just makes the trains crash. And I I actually love that sequence, because in the the one I looked at, it was the collector's edition, the most recent. (laughs) He says... You know, quickly, there are thousands of lives in danger. How far does this train have to move before, in, in order to be clear of the oncoming, you know, uh, right, train right. thundering down the tracks? And I, I really, I think that's a, a clever little bit of comedy. I actually like the family dynamic uh, in there. It feels uh, as bad of a father as he is. That initial sequence feels much more sort of in touch with um, the chaos of family. Uh, yeah. that, that happens and the the sort of diversionary tactics that one uses to try to you know just get people to come see Pinocchio. I love the fact that it sets up with him wanting to take the kids to see a movie that is totally fantastical, right? It's a movie, oh, yeah. uh, right? About you know, uh, well, about lies, uh, about sort of the nature of truth uh, in a movie that is about the nature of truth. Uh, and I find that um, I find it a really compelling sort of natural and, and organic sequence. I, I like it a lot. I, I absolutely see what you're talking about. And, I, you know, I think it, it makes more sense for the character. I think we, we would buy more of the uh, sort of imprinting that leads to him wanting to give up everything to go into space with these aliens. Um, you know, if we yeah. meet him in a, in a little bit more isolationist fashion. Well, and I mean, it does set up the fact that, okay, this guy is clearly not a family man. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, it does help kind of set that. It just, but it just, watching that scene after seeing the one in the original cut, I'm just like, 
and you're right. It does introduce the Pinocchio elements. There's a lot of other stuff that that is introduced in that scene that I think is very useful and helpful for the story. But it just makes me like Roy that much less because right. It's like, well, and man, isn't that guy... the, the devil's yeah, choice, right? Because yeah. the, do, having the extended family scene is better for the movie. Oh yeah, uh, but not for the character. Right. Absolutely. So. Yep. Yeah, and but you're right. Watching this movie again with kind of older eyes now it is funny seeing how moments like that or moments like melinda Dillon um as she's barry and just kind of watching her kid run off into the night and she's she's not like stop right there what are you doing running out with a flashlight i mean she's she's like lackadaisically going after him i'm like your son is running off into the woods in the dark (laughs) and then into the middle of a road (laughs) Oh, and he's, you know, really, I mean, kids are fast. I get that. But they're not that fast. Right? He was just gone. Yeah. And really, you know, I mean, did he have some trouble hearing? Like, really? There was, I don't know. That, well, that whole really, and and the the part that really gets me that sticks for me is at the very end, kind of the, the climax of the film, which we'll talk, I'm, I'm sure, about at length. But, you know, it's that, that sequence where, where, uh, um, you know, he's he's saying, you know, we got to get closer. We got to go down and see this. We got to get closer. And she says, oh, you know, I'm just not ready. I know. Right. Barry's not here. I can't go down I there. I can't go down there. <laughs> it's like, okay, they're the ones who took Barry. Yeah, right. But you're not, you're not going, going to go, to go down, down there. there. <laughs> I didn't. I, I I was not. Of, and, and, you know, I, I think I, I'm with you. Like, I like the overall experience of the film. Um, you know, as much, if not better. And I, I was surprised with how well the film holds up uh, over time. And, and I'm always alerted to that question. Is this film going to hold up when I see a title card that says present day? I, <laughs> I've, I've grown to hate that, to really despise present day because it immediately dates the film. It is, it's, it's dated about six weeks after the film's released. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and so I, I have trouble with that. And, Still, you know, in in spite of the fact that, you know, there's still a lot of rotary phones and, um, uh, you know, the it, everything looked really dated. It didn't look present day. Um, overall, the experience of the film and the experience of the, the, you know, highlight sequences for me really stood up quite well. I think that's something that always comes with that sort of any story where it does have that present day title card. It is an annoyance that it's in there because it's clearly not present day. And the farther you get from it, the more (laughs) obvious it is that it's not present day. But I don't know. I guess I just kind of look past those sorts of things. I mean, you you know, it it is what it is. And you just enjoy it for what it is. And I mean, this film does incredibly hold up as a film from the 70s. And I think... um, I mean, it, it even holds up as a film today just because of the solid storytelling. But yes, if, if I think that if they could lose that present day title card, it would just be, you know, a little more logical. Like, what is the benefit of having that? It's not like I don't it know. Starts, it's not like it starts in 1947 and then it jumps to present day. You know, that's normally when you would do something like that. So it, it's the entire film is present day. Yeah. So what's what's the point of that? I don't know. All right, so this was uh, so you you watched the making of stuff, I assume. Yeah, you know Spielberg is notoriously somebody who 
does not want to do commentaries. He wants the film to stand out on its own. But, you know, he, he does some wonderful behind-the-scenes documentaries and stuff. So I, uh, I, I loved watching it just sort of come together, and that is one of the nice things about, uh, about this film in particular because it's not just Spielberg doing the behind-the-scenes stuff. It's, um, you know, it's, it's the fact that this movie has been so well-documented over the last, you know, 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, and as as a film not just as a, a a film in the process of getting made but getting made and then getting reworked. Uh, I you yeah. know, my Twice. understanding is this is the first time that something like this really happened where a filmmaker got the opportunity to basically go back, add stuff to their film, rework it a little bit um just a few years later and basically kind of make a version that he liked better. Well, talk about I, that. How did that that come about? Because it really, I mean, the first one happened, you know, fairly close uh, to the original yeah. release. And then the next one was, you know, several, many years later. Yeah. I mean, he, the original cut came out in 77. This was a deal he had made with Columbia. Um, he had um, come up with this idea way back in the early 70s. He started toying around with it. And, he, uh, I think it was early enough where he ran into um, Michael and Julia Phillips, the two producers who did The Sting and Taxi Driver. And uh, oddly enough, we now have a Michael and Julia Phillips trilogy <laughs> that we've talked about That's here on the show. But um, he, he kind of pitched the show to them, and I think they were working with Columbia on this or something. And... After the success of Jaws, they were like, yes, let's do it. And so Columbia started moving forward with, the, with this film, and Michael and Julia were the two producers. And it got to a point as they were in production where Columbia started basically going bankrupt and having all these problems. And the head of Columbia at the time came to Stephen and said, look, your film has to come out at November because uh, this, I'm relying on this film to kind of keep us from having to declare bankruptcy and from the, the whole company collapsing. And by the way, it's like $18 million over budget from what you told us. Yeah, right, when right, exactly. On. There's way too much money being spent. Yeah. We can't, we got to stop. So uh, I, and because Spielberg was like, look, I want to keep doing this. I want to add this whole scene with this ship in the Gobi Desert. And they're like, no, no, no. He didn't feel he had time to complete the effects the way he wanted to. <laughs> you know what I think they said? No shit for you. <laughs> oh, wow. Very funny. <laughs> I'm a dork. You are a funny guy. So <laughs> Anyway. So he released it. So he, he put it together, released it in 1977 in November, and it did gangbusters. It was hugely successful. And uh, it, it was one of those where it re- released just L.A. and New York initially for the first month, and then it went wide. And it just made s- just tons of money. It did so well that Spielberg went back, and by the, and now Columbia was you know healthier again because this film had kind of saved it from bankruptcy. So he said, "Look, I want to go back and I want to fix it and do it the way that I wanted to do it initially." And they said, "Okay, but you got to give a little. You know, we've got to. There's got to be some something that you're giving to us in order to make it worth it. We want to see inside the ship at the end." And Spielberg never really felt, the way he says it is he never felt that going inside the ship was something that he should have done. He always felt like that was something that should have been kept for the audience's head to kind of picture it how they wanted to picture it. Uh, But he said, you know, I made a deal with the devil. 
and I agreed to do it because I'd get the rest of the money to go back and do all the other stuff that I wanted to do. So he got to re-edit it and rework it and change scenes and reshoot scenes. He got to go do the whole Gobi Desert scene. And then, of course, he had to shoot this whole ending where you see Roy go into the ship and you see him kind of go up inside and you see all the ships landing and you see all of the little aliens through the windows inside the little ship. And so you get that whole ending now. And that was the first thing when Spielberg decided to do the director's cut in 98. That was the first thing that he excised because he absolutely wanted that out. And, uh, and so, you know, he got it out and, and made some other changes in the, in the version that he released as the director's cut in 98. Um, it's interesting how many little changes across the entire film ended up, um, you know, kind of taking place over the whole thing. I, and interesting, I don't think the lengths vary that much across the three versions. It's like the first one is 135 minutes. The special edition is actually shorter. It's only 132 minutes, even though it has that extra stuff at the end. And then the director's cut is 137 minutes. So it is the longest of the three versions, but they're all within minutes of each other. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, we've talked already about the the... Uh, family stuff. Was there anything else uh, between the three versions that you found was just sort of substantively different? I, you know, the the in the special edition, one of the biggest cuts that I felt I, I really couldn't figure out why he cut it out, but it was the uh, it was where um, Roy's family wakes up with Roy kind of freaking out it's where he's finally uh, just losing it and he's throwing trees he's pulling up all the trees and the bushes and he's throwing dirt through the windows that whole thing was cut out and it basically goes from him freaking out in the bathroom to his wife driving away and the kids are like we got to help daddy we still got to help daddy and it, I, I don't know there's something about it where it sounds to me like well, and he's pulling up all the plants, and yeah, he's right. shoveling dirt through the kitchen window. and But they cut all of that. They cut all of that in the special edition for 1980. Oh, oh, because in the, in the collector's edition, it's, right, in the some of cut. that is back. All of, the, all of it is. All of it is? There wasn't extra yeah. digging up of the dirt? No, no, it's, just, oh. it's all there. It's, it, but in the special edition, he cut all of that, and he cuts in just as his wife is um, pulling away and leaving him. Oh, basically. yeah, no, so. that's lousy. Yeah, and it's just like, what what happened to all that? And then it cuts to him inside, and he's got this giant thing. And I, I can see well, why, okay, there's a big reveal. He's done this giant thing in his living room. But I don't know. They they cut a bunch of that out, and I didn't really understand why. Well, here's the interesting thing about that. Like, I, the way I had read that, in, in, you know, and because I didn't watch all three movies, I didn't know the extent of that cut. Um, but I, I, had, I had assumed, I had assumed that, they left the plants in, but there was more digging because I, I thought, I, how could they possibly get rid of this point right in the middle of the film, which is a little bit of nice comic relief, right? I mean, right, we see right. him coming unhinged, and it, you know, it's it's sort of subversively sad, but but subversively funny uh, because of what he's doing to his home, and especially after that happens immediately after he's saying, you know, I'm I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be okay. Uh, you know, and, and has sort of a coming to to his family, um, and and so I I thought that bit was actually really well uh, well placed. Yeah, it, in the it film is. Yeah. It absolutely is, and it's it was it was the strangest cut in the special edition that I really was at a loss for why he did it. So I was really glad that he put that back in the director's cut. 
Uh, how about in the, the, the big last 43 minutes? That's uh, Spielberg's final symphony, uh, final movement in this film. It's, very, it's mm-hmm. based on, it, it's built largely on a foundation of music and sound. And it's when we, you know, not only do we meet the aliens, that's sort of the big climax, but we see the return of the abductees. Or the abducted, right? right? Um, And so we see the 1940s airmen. We see, you know, some lots of children and families and people from, you know, wearing all sorts of different era of clothes. Um, And they all come out of the ship and they're kind of just checked off this giant list that says, hey, look, we found them. The the aliens had them all along. That that was kind of a weird list to just have. (laughs) <laughs> he already Just has in the case, tape. all these missing people. It, it, like they totally had been preparing for that. That is a really odd sequence. Uh, was there anything in that last section that you felt um, was was changed that in any way changed besides uh, Roy going on the ship? You know, nothing really changes at that that last bit in the end. That really holds true um, across all three versions. I mean, there's little things like there's a shot of. Francois Truffaut, that's a little bit longer in the original version, in the special edition. You know, I I think really all it was was just that whole ending. I don't think anything was added to the, uh, or or changed or taken out of the special edition from 1980 after that point where he's uh, tearing into the, uh, or throwing the stuff through the window. There is actually one scene in the original cut when he first gets to um, uh, outside Devil's Tower, that little town there, Mm -hmm. there is a scene where he tries to get this soldier to let him by. And that's right before he hears Jillian and runs to the train and reunites with Jillian. Um, There is a scene where he's trying to get past this, this soldier. The soldier is played by Carl Weathers. And so it's really strange to me. Oh, Carl, I don't remember Carl Weathers in this film, which is because I had never actually watched the original cut before. And uh, yeah, sure enough, there's uh, Carl Weathers. So that was, I think, one of the only things that... Oh, and also the the escape in the helicopter when he's, when they get off the helicopter and run, that's a little bit longer in the original cut. I think he smoothed that out a little bit in the uh, director's cut. But really, other than that, there's there's... The last 43 or so minutes of the film is largely unaltered. Wow. So it's well, most, of the, most of the earlier stuff. Okay, so that's some detail on the, uh, on the overall film. Tell me, talk to me about what this film, uh, what this film means to you. Like what it, where does it fit for you in the genre? Uh, you know, that's, that's interesting. Um, Spielberg is always, uh, he said that when he made this film, he called it, he didn't call it science fiction, he called it science speculation, because at the time he made this, he firmly believed that we had been visited. Um, and uh, he, one of the people that he used as a, a very big reference in writing the script for this and coming up with the story was uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, I believe is his name. Right who had been a, a basically a UFO sighting debunker for Project Blue Book, which was a government program that would basically debunk all these alien stories. Hynek, uh, you know, was helping Spielberg come up with all you know, the things. And, and basically what Hynek told him was, look, 
there is a small percentage of things that I have not been able to debunk. And it, it, it puts it basically, he said it put him in a place where he felt he, he couldn't work there anymore. It was, he, he, he was feeling there was enough of some stories that he couldn't debunk that he said, I, I had to quit because there's no way to debunk some of this stuff. And and then Project Blue Book, a little bit after that, kind of shut down. And Spielberg was kind of of the mindset with Hynek that maybe we had been visited. And, you know, I guess for me, this film is a solid entry. I, 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 don't, I don't know if I'd call it science speculation. I mean, I'd just call it a good science fiction film. But I think it's one of the more... Uh, realistic. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I don't know. I, you know, it's a funny. It, it's a funny entry because it, it's, it, it's almost less of a science fiction film than it is a conspiracy film, right? Uh, there is, although I remember it as more of a conspiracy film than it is. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I remember it as something where, uh, Roy was very much alone, uh, and, and not, uh, part of the, the sort of media coverage and, uh, you know, certainly not part of a larger group. I, I had forgotten, in fact, the initial flyby where he's on the road with all of the, all of the other folks in their cars watching this thing. I'd forgotten all of the tracking. Uh, one of the strongest sequences, I think, is the uh, is the the aircraft controller sequence. I think is is really really tight. It is really well conceived. And hearing them talk to these pilots and hearing the pilots and that dead space when they're asked if they want to file a report about what they saw when they when these uh, UFOs uh, buzz them in the air, Sp- specifically asking, do you yeah, wanna do you want to file a UFO? UFO? Yeah, I, I thought that was a really great scene. As I said, no, I don't want to. I don't want to be that guy. Right. Uh, it, you know, I thought that was great. I really did. Uh, and and so you know, there is a lot of this film that is about sort of the government reaction to it. And there's this great government meeting where all of the players are sitting around one of those great big long tables. And, and uh, you know, one of the media personalities, you know, uses the, the typical line, you know, there's, I've been in the media business a long time. And uh, in all my years doing this, I've never seen, uh, gotten a car crash or, or, you know, I can't, I, now that I know the script, crash an airplane crash. crash. Yeah, but never been able to film those happen. Yeah, so, right. Why? Why is it so hard to believe that these things could happen? And since then, of course, we we now have uh, so many cameras around that we have lots and lots of footage of all those things. Um, and I think are no obviously no closer to believing in the third kind of close encounter. Well, uh, if anything, we're farther from it yeah. because there's there's just so many cameras out there that. Uh, reports of UFO sightings, I mean, it, I, I, I guess it has actually diminished because there's just so many cameras out there yeah, now. Yeah. But what I love about this film in that light is that uh, it dabbles in the conspiracy theory uh, and doesn't go down the darker side, right? It doesn't go down, uh, it doesn't leave me with an overwhelmingly negative feeling about the state, Right, and I use heavy air quotes around the state here. You mm-hmm. know, it doesn't leave me thinking that there is somebody who's overtly out to uh, to hide something that's that's obvious. I mean, they clearly have 
put together infrastructure and pro-science and pro-understanding these creatures. And at the end, th- this was a uh, an invitation to Roy by members of this team to join the the uh, the red suit guys who had been trained and blessed they had been blessed by a priest uh <laughs> to to go on this journey into space with these aliens and i i think that is a decidedly 70s vibe right i i walked away from that feeling boy if that's anything that dates this film positively uh, I, I felt like that's that sequence is it. And as, as Roy is selected, you know, you actually have a member of the science team saying, I envy you, you know, that, that sort of um, playful spirit. I really liked the way the film wraps up in that way. And I think that's that's the overall feeling about the film that I get that takes me out of the experience of, of the, in, the, the minute, you know, family character issues that I have. Um, yeah, it's easy by the time you get to that point to kind of forget and, and put the, all the worries about yeah. the family stuff behind you and just focus on Roy and this journey that he's going to take, you know, for mankind, I guess you could say. But there is something very invigorating about this story that is filled so um, so positively uh, in a time when, you know, we had Watergate, Vietnam, there's all this stuff uh, up to this point. I think most of the alien films that were out there were scary aliens, right. um, except for maybe like the the day the Earth stood still. Um, but for the most part, they weren't like these benevolent, kind creatures that would come down to be our friends. They were more of the scary kind, you know, the the giant brain on their head, the right. laser eyes, and stuff like that. And coming at the time in the seventies when this did, it was a very interesting. Uh, idea to promote this idea of uh you know welcoming that curiosity right guess and, what they might be peaceful yeah and i i, I do find that uh, uh just a really nice story i still i i think this time i was also i don't think i'd ever noticed like the red the red vest or the red shirt people as much in previous uh years when i had watched this but the fact that they're sitting in their little row in the back watching um, uh, Truffaut when he's first doing the whole thing with the, the hand signs when he's right. kind of first presenting that, they're kind of in there observing. And uh, they're the ones on the bus, you know, when they start getting ready. And I, I think I've always kind of glossed over the fact that those guys were the ones that the government is prepping. I, I still find it odd that... Roy and like you know they, they've captured how many like about 12 people who have somehow made it to this point they made it all the way to Devil's Tower <laughs> and the government it's still not going to let them get go to it it's like the aliens have clearly drawn these people there and it's just like I don't know by that point I'm just like come on just well, let minute, those 12 people go what are you talking about about the red people no not the red people but the other people like the actual people who have finally you know, followed all the signs to get there. Roy and Jillian oh, and yeah. Larry and the old people, everyone who's on that helicopter at the end who's getting sent off. Who were imprinted. Who They were imprinted, yeah. and, and they all made it that far. Yeah. And the government was just like, well, that's great that you made it that far, but too bad. We're still kicking you out. 
Yeah. I, I don't know. It's just, it's just like, you know, you're so, they're so close. They made it. I mean, what harm is there going to be? I mean, in a film with so much benevolence up to that point. Yeah, that seemed a little bit heavy handed. Yeah. Like, come on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's that thrilling end to get uh, Roy and Jillian there, uh, finally, I guess. But uh, it, it's just one of those little things. But I'm like, and, and even Truffaut, you know, it's like, they belong here more than we. You know, he, he, he knows that they should be there. So. Huh. Ah. Oh, well. <laughs> um, so having watched all three of these films, and then we'll, we'll talk about the, I want to talk about the effects and the music, uh, but I, uh, I, I want to get your opinion of these three. Have, if, if you have never seen it or you haven't seen it in many years and you have a choice between the three, but you know you're not going to watch all three of them, which one would you recommend people watch? I would just say watch the director's cut. I mean, Watching them all, I think it has all of the stuff in it that I like. And it's, I had never seen the original cut until just now. And I was missing that, the boat. I really like the scene with the, the giant Where they find ta- the ship, tanker, yeah. tanker in the desert. Um, and I, I, I mean, I grew up with the, the, the seeing Roy go into the ship at the end. Um, like I, from the inside, seeing the inside of the ship. Um, uh, I like not seeing that. And so, you know, I don't know. I like the way that everything is told better in the director's cut. I think Spielberg, by the time he re-put it together that third time, uh, did it in a way where he kept all the good stuff and, and cut out the stuff that wasn't necessary. And I think that's the strongest of the cuts. So I would just say watch the, watch the most recent one. Excellent. I agree. As, as somebody who, watched <laughs> who only that watched that one. <laughs> uh, okay, let's talk about the effects, can we? Yes. Lots so, of great effects in this. Yes. Uh, yes, there were a lot of of great effects in this. The, the effects um, were done by, oh, what's his name? Trump, uh, Douglas uh, Trumbull. Trumbull. Douglas Trumbull. It was right there right there on the tip of my tongue. Now, Douglas Trumbull, what, the story that, that struck me that I thought was was really interesting, the story that struck me was Douglas Trumbull also worked on 2001. Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, uh, they worked really hard to get aliens in 2001, to really have aliens. And one version of the aliens they had actually had only one hole in it. And it was a hole that took in food and pooped out of it and spoke out of it and breathed out of it. It was the the uni hole, and it did everything for the alien. And that was one that they were excited about, but seemed like it would gross people out. <laughs> yes, so, so they they didn't use that one. So they went with lots and lots of of versions of aliens, and uh, they never got one that they liked as a team. And so here we come, Douglas Trumbull comes back. They got rid of all the, the aliens. Now the aliens were just suggestions of intelligence in 2001, which I think in that film actually works much, much better. I think it would have been diminished if we'd seen aliens. Mm-hmm. And now we come to this film and we actually have aliens. So my question for you, sir, is do you think he nailed aliens? Well, Douglas Trumbull, um, he was the visual effects supervisor on this, but he was actually not in charge of the aliens. It was Carlo Rimbaldi who right. did the aliens for the film. But Douglas Trumbull still, as the visual effects supervisor, still worked with Carlo to right. kind of get him right. I, I do like what they did with the aliens in the version that we see. I mean, there's three different 
I know Spielberg kind of says it's like Earth. There's lots of different varieties of people and life forms. And he says this: the aliens that come to visit, there's different varieties of aliens. First, you have this long, spindly, spidery-looking one that all I can think of when I see that first one is that's the least welcoming alien, and that's the first one you're going to send out? Are you kidding me? I know. <laughs> because that <laughs> one makes me think of that giant, like, dragon ghost thing that comes out of the closet in Poltergeist. Exactly. <laughs> all I can think of when I see that one. It's like, that's not the one that you should welcome people with. <laughs> <laughs> So there's that one, and then there's all the little tiny ones, of which there's just countless numbers of them. And then there's the last one, which is the the kind the children. <laughs> Not no, after the children, it's the one that the the solo oh, oh, one oh, comes yeah, out yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. does the little hand signs and everything. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so, I I like it. I I like. I think I like it because I like the way they chose to shoot it, where essentially they're all backlit, making the uh, features of them harder to see and uh, there's something about that that still leaves something to the imagination even though I'm getting enough of it to kind of picture what these aliens are and there's something unique about the way that they're acting that I enjoy so I, I do like the aliens I certainly in uh, knowing all of the additional footage that they shot of different types of stuff they were going to do with the aliens I think they made all the right decisions with the film. I don't know if you saw any of the footage of, of the other <laughs> stuff they were going to be doing with the aliens, but let's just say they were going down a lot of wrong roads with the aliens. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, one of the things I think the benefit of, of time, you know, we, we see these so clearly and the, the, you know, everything's been remastered and it's so gorgeous. And the aliens is one area where I thought, I, I think it's been remastered too much. Like, I, like at the end when that alien smiles in HD, it's like I don't that I can see it too clearly, and it's I I, well, I, I wanted more of the bright. What I remember was everything so bright that I couldn't actually really see any of the features of the aliens, and I liked that. That my memory of it was stronger, I think, than the than the actual appearance of it. Um, but but in general, I agree with you, and I I um, you know I like the choices they made. I like that you know this wasn't a film about the aliens, and yet they were, you know there was a, a sort of prominent role uh, for making this transition for the 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 third kind of encounter in a in a very positive way, and I, I think the design of the creatures really lends itself to that. Yeah, yeah, and it is one of those things where I mean that to me, I watch it and I can just tell. You know, those are kids with masks on. That thing is just a, and you know, a really ancient, uh, you know, form of puppetry mm -hmm. uh, that really stands out now as clearly '70s stuff. I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm so into the movie by that point that even though I can kind of tell that I, you know, there's problems with these aliens and how they're actually looking. I I just move past it pretty well. Mm. I, it doesn't bother me too much. Uh, okay. Other uh, uh, other things that stick out to you in terms of of production. Let's talk about the ships. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, the ships are just fantastic, and just the I don't know all the designs, the lights. I mean, I think it was very smart of them to settle on lights as kind of the defining feature for the ships because of the way that lights play with a lens. And kind of 
blinded a little bit. So you didn't have to worry so much about what the shape was, what the rest of the ship looked like. You get these lights flashing and you can tell that something's there. And it plays so well into uh, the the theme of, uh, or the gestalt of not being able to really make out what you just saw. Yeah. Right? I mean, in terms of the, you know, being a bystander. Like, it just, it really works well. And then I, I think the final reveal, like, it builds up so nicely to that final reveal where we go from, you know, lights dancing in the sky and a whole lot of, of lens flare uh, to being able to see this, like, this, this essentially this refinery drop from the clouds, you know, over right. over uh, Devil's Tower. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'd say it drops from the clouds. That's one thing that always yeah. strikes me about the film is like, right. How does why it, does it, it look it, like it's coming it out of the rises. Yeah. <laughs> it's a ship rise. How did that fit back there? <laughs> I mean, Devil's Tower is big, but man, not it's that not big. that big. <laughs> yeah, you think, when you think about the, the, the size of that ship in order to look like that over our horizon, our planet must be the size of like the moon. You know, it <laughs> right. must be very small. Uh, but um, but in general, I think once we actually see that, I it, you know, I, I I find just the the conception of it. I think it it works really well, and for me personally, and I think it you, you know, in in spite of the fact that I, uh, as you say, the ship rise, and there are some sequences where the ship is taking off, where the scale no longer sort of works. Um, overall, I, I just love the effect and I love the, um, I, I think the use of lights is just brilliant. Lights and color is just brilliant. It's mesmerizing. And that ship has always uh, in my head has just become such an iconic, um, sci-fi spaceship. Yes. It's always, uh, just, I don't know. It's one of my favorites because it's just the design, the lights, the the way that it moves, everything about it has always struck me as just there's there's just so much beauty in it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Me too. Classic. Uh, what else? Um, the um, well, I, I I guess that's really it. As far I mean, we could talk about the the ships. The lights, the effects. I mean, we could literally yeah. probably talk about that for hours because there's just so much stuff going on in, in this film. And all of the people involved, I mean, aside from Douglas Trumbull and Carlo Rimbaldi, I mean, Dennis Murin was working on this. Yeah, Dennis Murin, Ralph McQuarrie. Yeah, uh, right. You know, Roy Arbogast, a great phys- physical effects guy. Uh, I mean, just there's lots of big names. In, Joe Alves, the production mm-hmm. designer. Lots of people who are, are big names in that world and, and have been for a while, um, we're all like working on this. And so it's, it's just very exciting to, to, um, have all of these people together working on this great film. Absolutely. So where do you want to go from here? You want to talk about music or music, music, well, music, cinematography. cast, music, cast, cinematography. All right. I mean, all that stuff. All right. Yeah. Let's, music, let's talk about music just briefly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, Briefly, just acknowledging the fact that I think it was a very smart decision to tell a story about this is why I guess, you know, I said earlier that this kind of real sense of this story, there's something about the the smartness, I think, of of telling a, a story about communicating with another uh, with aliens, another life form that comes to Earth in because we don't speak the same language, obviously, but finding a way to speak math and using music to speak math. 
there was something about that that um, has always struck me as one of the most fascinating um, ways to kind of define science and not just define science, but tie kind of art and science together in a way that becomes this method of communication. And I found it such a smart a story element in this film. And I think Spielberg and, and John Williams, who just, I, I think this is one of my favorite scores of his, um, really, I mean, I know they struggled trying to come up with the, the five-note signature key that would be kind of the communication, the main point of communication in the film. Um, but when they hit on it and that when they're able to finally take that and John Williams was able to kind of elaborate on that, not just in the context of the film as like the communication point when the ship is there and they're going back and forth with the synthesizer, but also at the way that he builds it into the score and it turns into this just this operatic, just brilliant piece of music that I mean, that whole last bit is just truly, I think, one of the great pieces of music that he's ever written. Yeah, I I sort of agree. I I don't agree that this is one of his best scores. For for me, I find it uh, really an excellent sketch of many of the other scores that he's done that I like better. Uh, I I don't find it as vibrant and sort of uh, affecting uh, as uh, apart from the final sequence, which I think is more of a of an example of fantastic sound design than strictly scoring. Um, and, and I love it. I mean, I, I, I love it and I'm totally into it, but overall the, you know, there are elements that I, I feel like this is more of a diary piece for John Williams for scores that came later that I like much better and are much more affecting for me. I, I can't listen to this one. I have it and it's, it's one I put on. I can't listen to it and enjoy it. Well, and, and I there's think so I many think others that I can. To the point to that, I mean, I think it's, it's because the nature of this score is that there is a lot of different uh, there, well, there's two main types of music in this film. There's the the atonal stuff that kind of comes when the aliens are first visiting and freaking everybody out, which definitely is harder to listen to. But the way that it, um, I, I guess the stuff that I really like, that atonal stuff is harder to listen to, but it's all the stuff that builds on on this theme and the way that that theme evolves in the film. That's what I, I really latch on to. And yeah. that's why I like it. It's not as... You know, you don't have like, I mean, Star Wars, you don't have five different themes that you could hum just out of that film. You know, it's not quite like that type of a score. But for me, I feel that it's a little more of a, I mean, I guess I would say it's more of a mature score is the way that I see it. it it's, it's something that really fits in the context of the film really well. And you're right. It may not be something that is e as easy to sit and listen to on its own. But I think in the context of the film, I think this score is a, a perfect match for the film that it's for the story that's being told in the film. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with that. I, I'd agree with that. I just find I, until that last, until the sort of the third act, the meeting of the the aliens, uh, there, there's nothing. There's no theme in there that I remember that yeah. I recall. There's no sort of intensity that comes to mind. Um, and yet, I hear little snippets of. You know, man, do I hear snippets of Indiana Jones? Man, do I ever hear snippets of uh, Jurassic Park? Um, uh, but anyway, so that's me on John Williams. I don't need to belabor yeah. that one. Um, well, go ahead. You know, he's one of my J's. <laughs> I know he is. He's very much one of your J's. Yes, he is. Uh, Vilmos Sigmund. Yeah. Talk to me about Vilmos Sigmund. I don't know if it, this was a, an interesting experience for me watching this film. 
uh, so many times. I mean, the Blu-ray is completely just gorgeous. But and I don't know if it's because they shot it anamorphic or what, but I noticed a lot more softness in shots than I had noticed in the past. Yeah. And I was just like, gosh, that's weird that there's so much of that going on throughout this film. And I know that there was a lot of stuff they had to do in order to make all the effects shots work. Like they had to shoot everything that was an effects shot. Basically, they had to shoot in 65 millimeter um, because when they would um, when they would integrate the two shots uh, or the, the, the elements of the, the real footage of the people with the effects shots, the, it downgrades the footage. So they'd have to shoot the effects bigger so that when they... Uh, put all this stuff together, and then they brought it back down to 35 millimeter anamorphic. The the quality of the effects shots matched the quality of the other stuff. I don't know if that's why uh, some of the shots look worse than others, but some of them aren't effects shots. So I guess it it can't always be that. So I don't know. It's just one of those things where I was looking at. It, I'm like, gosh, it. How did that get by? Me, yeah, it strikes me strange that that uh, some of these shots are a little fuzzy and. Maybe that's why this, you know, he he didn't work with Spielberg again after this. Maybe Spielberg was, uh, you know, wondering why so many of the shots were uh, slightly fuzzy too. <laughs> right, right. Have we done any other uh, Wilmer Schickmund Spielberg? <laughs> Have we done wow. any other films of his? I can't. I mean, it, because there are other films of his that I mean, he's obviously a, a prolific uh, cinematographer. Um, yeah, and yeah, he's been doing this for a while, long time, and some films that you know we've talked about doing. We've talked about doing Blowout. We've you know Deer Hunter is a favorite. Of mine. I did that right after Close Encounters. Um, you know, but but even leading up to Deliverance, The Long Goodbye, um, you know, he's he, he prolific uh, work, and yet this film strikes me as. Um, I don't know what it is. It strikes me as so much more uh, Spielberg than Vilmos Sigmund, right? Like in ter- stylistically, like it feels very much like uh, I could, I would al- align this much more as a Sp- Spielberg film than a, than as a film that that really has a, a a style of cinematography. This doesn't look like, you know, I, I couldn't place this next to Maverick and see you know similarities to me in terms of stylistic approach. If anything, this one strikes me as definitely a film of the seventies. There's something about the the I don't know just the the feel of it. it and and maybe it's just the 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 film stock from back then maybe that's all it is but it does seem to me that it has kind of that sort of vibe and uh, I mean I really like the look I, I like the way all of it kind of plays out but to me it does seem um I I think you're right it definitely does feel like there's a little more Spielberg in there than maybe. Um, more of that Vilmos Sigmund look. And maybe it's, I mean, this is, I mean, he had been doing this since the six, the 50s, really, 50s and 60s. Maybe he was, uh, you know, still kind of working with some of these people like uh, Robert Altman and stuff where there that a little more of that independent, kind of that 70s vibe going on. Yeah. So he, the director just kind of maybe just, I mean, it really does fall down to the director and what he really wants out of it. So, I mean, he's just working doing what what Spielberg wants him to, I guess, right? But, well, he is, but, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think that's a... Um, it is a testament, I think, to the, the sort of 
control of the the Spielberg control because for me this film is not so much 70s as it is you know I mean I could look at this I look next to Empire of the Sun and I look next to uh, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan and the way they use height in this film you know in terms of the way they use these dolly shots and these crane shots to 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 give us this sense of perspective uh, you know from looking up uh, being on the ground looking up at the at the sky and looking up at the you know at the the bodies of the actors as they're moving by to looking down from you know as we're getting this perspective i think uh of the aliens uh and and moving so adeptly and uh, through the the action of a, a particular sequence i think is they they do really really well in particular these backlighting shots right i mean God, the the quintessential shot from this film when the when barry opens the door and there's that fiery red light right uh you know coming through that is that is the shot from this film and uh it it is to me such a spielberg shot like i it, it's you know he might as well have been running the camera it it looks to me like uh like i could have just as easily placed it in uh, the last crusade or uh you know minority report you know what i'm saying right well I interestingly mean, that... they, he made this movie again in 2005 with war of the worlds and did not do anything nearly as interesting <laughs> well we'll have to talk about that another day <laughs> chicken <laughs> all right all right all right who else who else uh, one strikes your fancy well, Michael Kahn, this is uh, the first time that uh, Michael Kahn, the editor, has worked with Spielberg. They, uh, they basically, from that time forward, have created a, a lifelong partnership. And Michael Kahn has edited every Spielberg film except for E.T. And I'm not quite sure why he didn't edit E.T., but my, my uh, sneaky suspicion is that it's because I believe Michael Kahn was, um, I think what happened, uh, there's a whole thing about Poltergeist. And the fact that Spielberg wrote it, uh, produced it, and then Toby Hooper was directing it, a lot of people say uh, Toby Hooper wasn't really cutting the mustard, and Spielberg kind of came in and handled the directing. I don't know how much of that is really true, but... Michael Kahn was the editor on that. So I, and so instead of doing E.T., I don't know if Spielberg is like, hey, why don't you go edit this one? I, I think that's the one that I have, I'm having more trouble with. I'd love to have your hand in that because we work so well together. You know what I want. And then he had someone else come on board E.T. I don't know really what the story is with that, but that's my sneaky suspicion. Wow, what a soap opera. I tell what you. drama. But uh, yeah, but yeah, Michael Kahn, I, I think, uh, you know, Spielberg said the last 25 minutes of this film, the hardest, uh, the hardest bit of, of uh, film that he's ever had to edit. It was, it was just a real struggle trying to figure out how they were going to make it work. And, you know, I, I think I can um, understand why after watching a lot of the different alien footage that they were shooting and everything. I mean, right. there was just crazy stuff going on so um but i think the ending works really well i really like the way they did it so the ending holds up a lot of the rest of the film for me i mean obviously it's 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 beautiful yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. it's a wonderful film so uh but yeah michael Kahn, uh you know there you go there you go important important uh relationship formed on this film you want to talk about the cast yeah um 
Richard Dreyfus, I think, is great as uh, as Roy in this film. I think he um, Spielberg uh, initially was talking to people like Steve McQueen, Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Gene Hackman, um, uh, Richard Dreyfus, who we talked about on Jaws, kept bugging Spielberg, saying. You need to cast me. You need to cast me. And Spielberg's like, yeah, you're not quite right. And this was when they're on Jaws, and he could only see him as Hooper at that point. And then finally, uh, Richard Dreyfus said, "You need to cast somebody who is more like a child, who's closer to their childhood than they are their adulthood." And when when he said that, it triggered something in Spielberg, who acknowledged him as that's exactly right. You're the guy to do it, and that's what triggered him to cast Richard Dreyfus, And I think Richard Dreyfus is perfect as this guy who is not meant to be a father, not meant to be a family man. He's meant to be somebody who's supposed to go off on a spaceship. I think the comparison of Roy Neary to Hooper is actually quite apt. And I think it's funny that Steven Spielberg didn't actually see that and talk specifically about how he didn't see that uh, until that moment that you you talk about that conversation. The, the idea that um, you know, I see those same characteristics, that same sort of eagerness to to explore and to be in that sort of childlike awe. Uh, that's Hooper's character as a scientist, as a you know, as an oceanographer, as somebody who who comes in to study. Um, he is so you know excited about the idea of this shark in a really giddy, youthful way, just as he is excited about the idea of you know, what's out there and learning what's out there. I have to see if this is really happening. But I don't think he's excited and giddy in this film. I think, if anything, I think Hooper fits more with the Lacombe character, Francois Truffaut's character. He's the one who kind of has that childish excitement about something big is happening and I'm, I get to be kind of the guy who's going to be behind the whole discovery. We don't I, I ever think... see Francois Truffaut playing with mud. <laughs> well, that's true. That is true. But Man, does he, uh, does he look like the perfect guy who I want to be like my uncle or something? I, t- I totally agree with that. I absolutely <laughs> agree with that. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, he's great. I, I, have a, I have a problem with Melinda Dillon. I love Melinda Dillon. I don't have a problem with her in this. I just have a problem with the character. Yeah, well, either way, I, yeah, no, I find her totally underwhelming. She got earned an Oscar nomination for her performance in this film, and I find her totally underwhelming. And the whole time I'm thinking, man, they should have swapped her and Terry Garr. I, w- I find Terry Garr's, uh, I just, I think that was just a mix-up. It's like it was an accident on the first day of shooting, and they showed up in the wrong shoes. That's really funny, because when Terry Garr read the script, she uh, Spielberg said, I want to offer you the part of, of Ronnie. And she's like, oh, no, 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 I, I need to be Jillian. <laughs> Spielberg is just like, no, I, I want you to be the housewife. I see you as kind of the typical housewife, and that's what I want you to be. And so that's what she ended up getting cast as. So it's funny that so Terry, Gill- Terry Garr wanted to be that other uh-huh. role. <laughs> Terry Garr and me. And you I guys, think Spielberg guys... was wrong. <laughs> he was totally wrong on this one. Yeah, it's it, that the the role of the housewife is really a thankless role in this film. I mean, it's yeah. you know she's she's not a sympathetic housewife. She, uh, I mean, granted he's a terrible father and husband, but at the same time, there's nothing. Uh, she shows no. She tries. She she just never quite gets there. I actually really love the moment, and I always forget about it. But the moment when he drags his family out in the middle of the night to go wait for this encounter. Right. And 
there's that great moment between the two of them where she's just you know walking around and you know asking him all these questions what's it look like what color is it and she's like don't you think i'm handling this really well because it's like four in the morning (laughs) to go look for aliens and she's like i remember when we used to come to places like this to look at each other there's something so honest and just so sweet about that moment between the two of them and then they kind of kiss and then you know the kind of the funny you know tag at the end of that as he kind of opens his eyes and looks back up to the sky as they're kissing that's a cute moment but i really like that moment between these this couple i i kind of wish there was a little more of that all uh, right. just to kind of make me like her a little more maybe but i i i also understand from spielberg's perspective if you put too much in nobody's going to like roy yeah and that's the danger yeah that's right that's right um that uh their their big fight yeah is is it, it's just a uh, it's exhausting yeah uh, especially because the kids are involved that's that's what always makes it hard for you yeah, it is it's but just, you, it's tough yeah it's tough just to watch how they how they relate to the kids and 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 how much of the kid i mean how human that relation is you know when they when yeah. you just see all their buttons getting pushed you know you know right. those you know those buttons um Okay, so Francois Truffaut, Terry Garr, Melinda Dillon, Richard Drive. Does anybody else jump out at you you want to talk about? Uh, the only other one, I mean, you know, it's Bob Balaman. I mean, the cast is just fantastic in this. But somebody, uh, and Carrie Guffey as as the as little three-year-old Barry. I just, I love him. And oddly, Lance Henriksen as you know, <laughs> kind of like guy in the back all yeah. the time. You know, which <laughs> cracks me up. It's just like, that's the weirdest role for Lance Henriksen, but there he is. But the one that... Um, stands out that uh, no one ever talks about, but it it just, he stands out every time I watch it is Robert's Blossom playing the kind of freako alien guy who's sitting on the hill playing his harmonica or whatever he's doing. Yes. And, you know, he's I saw kind of that crazy guy. Once. Yeah, he's great in this. <laughs> and he's like the perfect guy that you don't want to be on your side yeah, yeah. when you see an alien. And uh, so he's so great in this in that role, and it, I didn't even realize it until later. But he was the uh, the old guy in uh, in Home Alone. He's the uh, yes, the other guy, the who, old scary uh, neighbor. Yeah, right. Who he kind of uh, who Kevin befriends. Yeah, and uh, I didn't recognize him right away, but I was like, oh my gosh, that's the uh, old man Marley. So <laughs> that's a awesome. Little bit, yeah. Uh, you know, we've been talking about this movie for a long time. No. I think we could talk about it for much longer. Uh, we have, could. What are your What are your final things? Um, Do you have final things? Uh, you know, I, I have pages of final things. I think, uh, you know, I think what I would just say is this is just an absolutely fantastic movie. I really love it. And it's uh, it's a film that is worth spending time with. How's that? That was pretty good. You didn't even give me a chance to drink. Yeah, I, I will say, can I just uh, tell you a little obsession that I, I had? Oh, you know how I live for these. <laughs> I was really curious because I, I was plugging the numbers in, as I do every week, trying to see how this movie did in relation to all of our other movies. This movie uh, did really well for itself. It came out in 1977. Now, granted, the numbers for this do have some of the re-release um uh, profits figured into it, yeah. But even even with that, I I don't think it would have um, really changed it that much. 
this movie jumped all the way up to when you figure uh, adjusted profit and adjusted profit per finished minute in particular, this has become the number two film on our list. <laughs> just behind Jaws, just before Raiders of the Lost Ark. So Spielberg now, wow. on our list of films that we've talked about, holds the top three spots when you adjust for inflation. That's if you don't fantastic. adjust for inflation, um, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is still number one. Jaws, Raiders, Temple of Doom, closing, and then you've got Born Ultimatum in seven, and then Close Encounters is number seven. If you don't ingest, adjust for inflation, he's the top four? He's the top four, and then he's also seven and eight. <laughs> Close Encounters in Last Crusade. So wow. of, the top, of the top ten films, not adjusted. But of course, once you adjust it, um, it still is Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders, uh, Temple of Doom, Crystal Skull, Last Crusade. They're all still in the top ten. So wow. this, this piqued my curiosity, and I decided... I wonder, yeah, I should do this for all of Spielberg's films. And so I created a new tab on our <laughs> movie cost per minute breakdown. I put in all 27 of Steven Spielberg's films that he, his full theatrical films. So Duel is not on here. Twilight Zone, the movie is not on here. But everything that is a full theatrical film, they're all on here. So his two top grossing films, when you look at profit per finished minute or just profit, period are E.T. and Jaws. Those two are like neck and neck as far as how profitable those two are Okay. when, when adjusted. Below that is Jurassic Park. Okay. And then Close Encounters. All right. The Lost World, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, then Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, War of the Worlds, and then Last Crusade. Those are his top ten. How now, did Crystal Skull make that much? I don't know. I don't know. That that one just nerds. You carry shame, <laughs> nerds. <laughs> so of his 27 films, do you think that he's made a film that has lost money? That has lost money. I'm I uh I want to say no, but I I have a feeling you're going to trick me. Uh, because he did make one that lost money. What? It is Empire of the Sun. No way. That film, uh, yeah, it cost $35 million to make. Um, and then it only grossed a, a total of $22.2 million. Wow, that makes me sad. I know. It's it's a fantastic film. It certainly deserves a, a better reception than it got. Uh, but everything else, even if it made very little money, like like Amistad or uh, Sugarland Express, Munich Warhorse, Always, those all still ended up uh, making little bits of money. Well, and so here we are. So I just brought up your tab, too. And you can find this tab if you go to the website and click on the Extras uh, menu, you can jump to the um, cost per minute breakdown. You'll find the Steven Spielberg cost per minute. And I just opened it up. And I, I mean, you say, oh, they made a little bit of money, but, you know, Munich made $45 million. Yeah, right. I mean, they still made a, they still made a heck of a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. It's really just like, uh, it looks like it's Amistad when, and Sugarland Express. You compare it to E.T. that made $1.8 <laughs> <billion. laughs> 
<laughs> right, exactly. There, that's the difference. That is the difference. Wow. Yeah, he's an interesting director who holds a lot of weight. If you go through the release dates of all of his movies, every one of them was either re- released in uh, May, June, or July. So he's got like the peak summer months. Yeah. Or, uh, or November, December. In fact, December, I should say, except for Close Encounters, which was November. The only one that falls outside of that is his first film, Sugarland Express, which was a March release. So he's definitely somebody who is tapped into the market and has the ability to say, I want my films released either summer or, or award season. Wow. it's a lot of juice. Yep. Uh, I think we should, uh, we should probably rank it. Let's do it. If you head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, you will find our stack rankings of all of the films that we've talked about to date. And uh, you can see, uh, you can friend us over there and see how this, how our films line up with your own ratings. What do we think? Let's do it. We got Close Encounters or Gattaca. It's totally Close Encounters. Yeah, that's, that's Close Encounters. Close Encounters or Fargo? Oh, Close Encounters. Close Encounters or All the President's Men? All the President's Men. <sighs> I know. That's, that's a really hard one. You know, I do love me some awesome President's Men. I know you do. I know. <laughs> I think uh, I just said All some President's Men. Also. There's some Presidents and they have men. All Definitely, it's a different, it's a different, it's a different genre. <laughs> this i i don't know man i don't know it might be close encounters for me think of it i i never i never drift during awesome president's men <laughs> <laughs> i'll go all the president's men uh even though uh <laughs> i drifted in close encounters but it was the third time that I watched it in a row. <laughs> in three so days. It was completely justified, <laughs> but I because of that, I still will go all the presidents. Just for you, buddy. Oh, close nuts. Encounters or <laughs> or About a Boy. It's got to be Close Encounters. Close so. Encounters, yeah. Uh, close Encounters or The World's End. I would still go Close Encounters, but, you know, give it 20 years. Yeah, all right. All right, Close change. Encounters. Close Encounters or Being There? Uh, I'm going to go Close Encounters. Yeah, I'm still Close Encounters. All right. There we have it. Number 16 out of 118. I'm a little surprised that didn't uh, crack the top 10. Well, we've got some re-ranking to do. (laughs) (laughs) There's some films in our our top 10 that I think shouldn't be. We should probably re-rank our top 10. We need to at a, we, at a bare minimum. We should re-rank our top ten. Yeah, yeah we right. got to do. Oh, last thing that I want to say about this: in college, in my biology class, something when you have a film titled something like "Close Encounters of the Third Kind," you it, it's ripe for spoof titles, right? Oh yes, <laughs> yes. I have never gotten out of my head that the biology teacher I had in college had us watch a documentary about plant life and how plants. Uh, I, I don't want to say mated, but how they get their their uh, their pollen from one plant to the other. 
luring insects to do it. And so they have this documentary made called Sexual Encounters of the Floral Kind. <laughs> I'm not kidding. There's a documentary that we watched. And I actually found you can watch it in like little 10, you know, seven to 10 minute chunks on YouTube. So we'll throw a link to one of those in the show notes. I think that, and, it is just, and we're actually going to do a whole show on it uh, coming up in the year. Guilty the year. pleasure. <laughs> uh, it's fantastic, Andrew. Where do we go from here? Uh, well, we're going to continue our original sci-fi uh, series, and we're going to go to James Cameron's fantastic undersea adventure, The Abyss. You're watching, the, you're watching the aliens. Are you watching the director's cut of this one? Uh, yes, I am. All right. So you're you know you're not going to watch like the original I, theatrical like dailies. <laughs> <laughs> I think for this one, I'm good watching one. I did it for Close Encounters. I think I'm okay. I think you're okay. for the <laughs> All right. Well, I can't wait. I'll talk to you next week. Until then, I got to go to bed. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.